into the teaching of the book of Revelation. Notice that I said Revelation. I did not put an S on the end of it like a lot of people like to do. The Revelations doesn't say that. In fact, it begins with what it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to begin looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ in a message I entitled, looking at verses 1 through 9, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a book in the Bible that a lot of people have shied away from. They're unsure. It has a lot of uh, visions, pictures, mind pictures that are, I, I will omit to you, they are very difficult to kind of comprehend. But I have to tell you that the image is getting clearer in these last days. I remember reading one of the men who wrote on the book of Revelation. He wrote in, I think the book was published like in 1909, very early. And he was trying to envision how a mark could be put on the back of the hand. A mark could be put on the back of the hand on their forehead. And, and he envisioned having government officials sitting at every store um, watching as you come in and you show your tattoo that you have. Now, can you guys envision how some kind of mark could be put on the body today? Not necessarily a physical, visible tattoo, but it could be there. Yeah, we can. It's as Paul said, we look in a mirror dimly, but soon or then face to face. Right now we're looking in that mirror dimly and we've been given a prophecy by Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John while he was on the Isle of Patmos. Because of his faith, he was banished to that island for a time, a prison island that we might say, like our own country had Alcatraz on the west coast. This was that type of prison island where John was given a vision by the Lord of things that would soon to come to pass. And we'll talk about these verses, the first nine verses today, as we get into the study of the book of Revelation. And so a very interesting study. We'll go through it. I'm sure I will continue to learn as I go through it. It's not my first time teaching through the book of Revelation. We're actually featuring it at noon on our radio station at 12 noon. The last time I taught through the book, that's being broadcast right now. But as I go through it, and it's how it is in studying all of Scripture, I realize that there is much for me to learn. And as I go through these passages with you, I'll be learning. And also, we see in a mirror dimly, but I think it's not as dim as it used to be for me. When I first started studying the book of Revelation, when I was in my 20s, things are getting a little clearer now as our world seems to be moving quickly toward a one-world type government, the desire of many in our world, but also prophesied in the Word of God, given to His church to let us know the things that are to come. So the book of Revelation, John foretells the events concerning not only the unveiling of Jesus Christ, but also the last days. And many believers have shied away from this book, but it's been given to us by Jesus. And because Jesus gave this book to his church, then we should desire to read it, to hear it being proclaimed, to keep it, 
And the Word of God tells us in Deuteronomy 29:29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us. This belongs to us. It's been revealed. Those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things, they belong to God. That's still true to this day. But the things that he has revealed to us concerning the word of God, but also here in the book of Revelation, they've been given to us that we could apply them to our lives. And more than this, this book comes with a promise in verse 3, which says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy. A threefold blessing has been applied to the book of Revelation. If you want to get blessed with the book of Revelation, just read it. And God said, I'll bless you. Just read my word or listen to it. I'll read it for you here today. But also keep those things which are written in it. This threefold blessing here in the book of Revelation. To not read the end of the story, well, it's horrible. You know, the Lord has given us his word and he gives us an account of the last days and we think, well, that's too hard to understand. It would be like getting a present from a loved one who has guaranteed you open that present and you will be blessed. And they stand there smiling, waiting for you to open it and you think, no, I can't, I can't open it. Sorry, And you just let it sit there. The Lord says, you're going to be blessed. The Lord has promised this. And so we should read, hear, and keep with great anticipation the things that the Lord would have to teach us, his church, this day and age that we find ourselves in. So the unveiling of Jesus Christ, we're going to see Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The introduction is in verses 1 through 3. His salutation, verses 4 through 6. He is coming, verses 7 and 8. And our brother and companion, verse 9. I'll go ahead and read our first three verses and open us in prayer. And the title of this section is The Introduction. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified by his angels to his servant john who bore witness to the word of god to the testimony of jesus christ and to all things that he saw blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near so father we ask that you would Be with us as we begin now this journey through the book of Revelation together as the church, as your body of Christ here in Lake Villa. And those, Lord, who are with us through the radio or through online video, we just pray, Lord, your blessing upon us that you would teach us, give us a greater understanding of the last days of a picture of our world that we find ourselves in, and then to be able to 
line up our world with a biblical worldview and realize, Lord, you have prophesied many of the things that we are seeing take shape, forming in our world today. And so, Lord, you have given us this information. You have promised, Lord, a blessing to those who would read, hear, and keep. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us this day as we begin our journey through the book of Revelation. We ask in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So you may know it as apocalypso or apocalypse, a Greek word that means revelation. It means to reveal or an unveiling, to uncover, much like having a statue that in our day and age we want to tear down statues, not us personally, but we've seen a lot of those torn down, but just perhaps somebody puts up a statue, they cover it up, there's going to be an unveiling, a revelation of this statue to the community that it's in, and they usually have some kind of ceremony, and there's a point where they unveil the statue. This is the word, apocalypse, means the unveiling to reveal. It refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is unveiling once hidden information about himself, about the seven churches of Asia, and the future events that will coincide with what we know as the tribulation and the great tribulation and also the Lord's second coming. This revelation was given by God to his son Jesus, who in turn sent an angel, a messenger, to his apostle John to reveal these things to him. So God gave the revelation to Jesus just as our Lord operated under the authority of his father while he was upon the earth in his earthly ministry he said in John 12:49, I have not spoken of my own authority, but my Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus said, my Father has given me this command. I haven't spoken under my own authority. And once again, the Father gives this revelation to Jesus who in turn shows it, reveals it to John, his apostle, and we find that as believers, we have been brought into this family of God. We are members of the family of God. We are called children of God in Scripture. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the family, and this is sort of like having inside information, family information that the Lord has given to his church, to his family as Jesus said in John 15:15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I've made known to you. And we see that the Lord is now in this revelation of himself, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is making these things known to the church body. It was sent by an angel and a messenger in Scripture, angelos is the Greek word. It means one who is sent forth or here referring to a supernatural being who in service to the Lord, he is bringing this message to the Apostle John. John is given a tour guide in the book of Revelation. And every once in a while, he'll step back and let us know uh, who is showing him the events 
that he has seen in this vision, this revelation. Sometimes it will be an elder in heaven. At other times, it will be the Lord Jesus Christ speaking directly to John. But more often than not, we find this angelos, this messenger, this angel guiding John through this revelation. In Hebrews 1.14, the word of God tells us concerning angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels, they're ministering spirits. And John has one that guides him through the revelation here. He tells us in verse 2 that he bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. This is talking about the Apostle John. Apostle John is the witness. He is the one who is relaying this message to the church, taking what he has seen, given to him, pinning it, putting it down in a scroll at that time on a piece of parchment, but giving it to the church. He is a witness of these things. He was there banished on the Isle of Patmos. Like I said, the word tells us because of the word of God for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And while he was there, I believe personally that the Lord needed to slow John down. John was from what scripture and tradition tells us the last living of the 12 apostles Tradition says he died at a great age, ministering to the church in Ephesus, well in his 90s. And as the last living, he was no doubt busy serving the church. And sometimes when we're busy serving others, sometimes the Lord, he wants to speak a word to us. He has to slow us down. For John, it's like, John, I'm sorry, but you're going to get arrested. It's going to be worse than that. Tradition says that he was first thrown in a cauldron of boiling oil but it did not kill him so tradition says he was thrown in this oil he did not die it does not say whether he was scarred from the oil or not like daniel and in the lion's den untouched by the lions or shadrach meshach and abednego untouched by the flames of the fire tradition doesn't tell us exactly what happened to john other that they realized we can't kill this guy so we're going to banish him But I believe that the Lord slowed him down that he could receive this revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. John 19.35 tells us, John speaking when he wrote the gospel of John saying, he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John was a faithful witness of the word of God to the people of God and to those who did not yet believe. The testimony, this word for testimony, speaking about this witness or the evidence that was being presented. Here's what was said. I like this. It comes from uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse in his book on the Revelation. He wrote concerning the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book in our Bible. He said this, without the last book in the Bible, other parts of scripture would lose much of their significance. It is the complement of the book of Genesis, which finds its very reason for being in the glory of revelation. The Bible would be incomplete were 
the entrance of sin recorded without its judgment and exit. So the entrance, Genesis, without its judgment and exit, Revelation. Man's ruin is complete in earlier parts of Scripture. Man's redemption is perfect in Revelation. The Revelation would be just as incomprehensible without Genesis. You know, it takes the whole Word of God for people of God to have a right understanding of God and His message to us. And I fear quite often we would rather have the Reader's Digest version of Scripture. Just give us the condensed format of it and let's just kind of get the main points. But who's to say the exact main points, what those points are? Some of them, of course, we know. We know that Christ came and he died according to the Scripture. That he was buried in a tomb according to the Scripture. And three days later, he rose from the grave according to the Scripture. Yeah, we have some fundamental points, but I fear that quite often when we overlook many parts of our Bible, we miss the intent that the Lord would have for us. And so the promise given to us again here in verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. In John's day, they didn't have multiple copies of the Bible. They didn't have uh, Google to be able to say, a word of scripture and have it pop up on your device, whatever that device might be, or your Bible that you have that you can carry with you. I still like to use the old leather and pages personally, but I also use modern technology as well. I'm not opposed to that. But in John's day, maybe a copy, originally one that was copied, then there was two, there were three, four. They would be distributed to the churches. You would get your copy. People would come and they would read. So blessed is he who reads. Hey, John, it's your turn to read from the Revelation today. Oh, wow. This could be a blessing for me to be able to read it before the church. Or those who hear, those who hear the word of God being read, but also the significant side of this is the keeping, not just reading, not just hearing. Remember Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but keeping those things which are written in it. And those who keep mostly concerns, well, as I was thinking about this, those who keep when speaking to the church, the Lord is directly going to speak to the church in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then he is going to speak about future events where I believe and many in the church believe that the church will no longer be here from chapters 4 through 19. As you read through the book of Revelation, you'll discover in chapters 4 through 19 that the church is not even mentioned once in those chapters. It's like God took them out. We call that the rapture, but it tells us 4 through 19, the events that will take place upon the earth after the rapture of the church, that season that we know of as the great tribulation. But also in chapter 4, it takes us into immediately into the heavenly throne room where we see the worship of heaven taking place. And so 
chapters 1 through 3, specifically teaching the church, applying it to the church, our lives today. And then we get a glimpse of heaven. We get a glimpse of the final judgment in the remaining chapters of this book. There in chapters 20 through 22, we get a glimpse again of the millennial reign of Christ, the final judgment of all things, and a new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus gives specific instruction to the believers that were living during his that time when John received this revelation. But also as we see, as we get into chapters 2 and 3, how the words that the Lord gave to the seven individual churches of John's day can apply to churches of our day as well. It's a prophecy. It's a foretelling of future events that I believe as you read through the revelation, you discover that what John saw and has relayed to us now through the word of God, many of these things have not yet taken place. As you read through it, it, it it's just has not been fulfilled historically. So we still look at this revelation as a future event, a declaration given by the Lord, one that came from divine inspiration, declaring the purposes of God, whether by a prophecy, whether by reproving or admonishing the wicked or giving comfort to the afflicted and the body of Christ, the church, revealing hidden things. But especially when talking about prophecy, foretelling of future events. In Second Peter 1.21, Peter wrote, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given the words to the men, 40 men who had given the word of God to us. But also this urgency, the time is near or it's at hand, the end of verse 3. This time, it speaks about a word that talks about a fixed or definite period of time, a definite season. And the nearness speaks about proximity. It actually comes from a Greek word that has been translated to squeeze or to throttle up. Think about that, to throttle up. And I think we're definitely, it's springtime, us motorcycle riders. We're throttling up. Haven't got my bike out yet. We definitely see things throttling up in our world today. Some believe that Jesus would return actually before John's death. We learn this in John's gospel in John 21, verses 21 through 23. When Peter, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then John said, then this went out, a saying among the brethren, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So John said, There is this kind of legend that has went out about me at the end of the Gospel of John. He said, there's this legend that went out about me that I will not die until the Lord returns. And he reminded the people, Jesus never said that. In fact, it's believed that John was given the revelation of Jesus Christ while he was on the Isle of Patmos. John tells us that. 
He then was released and finished out his days in Ephesus as the pastor of the church there in Ephesus, but also at that time writing the Gospel of John. And John, at great age, reminding people that the Lord is coming, but he didn't say that I was going to hang around until he came. But God's long-suffering, the time is near, the time is at hand, and we'd instantly think, man, John wrote this a long time ago, almost 2,000 years. What in the world does near mean? What does it mean to be at hand if it's nearly 2,000 years since the Lord gave us this passage? But then we go to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, and also 8 and 9. 2 Peter 3, 3 says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Anybody ever meet any scoffers? They're here. Walking according to their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise toward us, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When I got here at church, I was thinking about it on the way over here. The Lord is not slack. One day is as a thousand years. And so in the church parking lot, when I got here, I used my Google and I asked um, Jewish calendar, what year is it? It's like 5,700 and something. But what I read was, according to the Jewish calendar, we are in the sixth millennium. Think about that. Since creation, six days in God's perspective. It's only been six days. God looks at it. We say 2,000 years. It's like, nope, two days. I haven't even finished the two days yet from God's perspective. In fact, think about this. We're in the sixth millennium. What does God do on the seventh day? He'll rest. How many years will be the millennial reign of Christ? A thousand years. Seventh year is coming. The seventh day, I should say, is coming. So blessed are those who read, hear, and keep those things in it. So the salutation, verses 4 through 6, again, we read the context. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn over the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The salutation, John writing to the seven churches which are in Asia, will have those churches listed out for us in chapters 2 and 3. And we'll take our time when we get there going through the seven churches. But you will discover as we go through the book of Revelation, I calculated out how many times the number 7 is used in the book of Revelation. In the Bible, the number 7 is the number of completion, that which is complete. So in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches, seven spirits of God before the throne. We'll talk about that in a moment. Seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven lamps of fire, seven seals, 
a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, seven angels who stand before God, who are given seven trumpets, seven thunders, a fiery red dragon with seven heads and seven diadems, a beast with seven heads, seven angels with seven last plagues, which in these plagues are seven bold judgments full of God's wrath. There are also seven mountains and seven kings. We're going to see the number seven a lot as we go through the book of Revelation. The seven churches were churches that were there in Asia Minor. And he didn't write to the church in Jerusalem because by this time they were non-existent. So he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. And we'll find that in these seven churches, the typical church of John's day, seven churches that had issues or blessings that they would receive from the Lord, discipline or blessings. The Lord goes through those in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll look at. But also, historically, we see that what the Lord says to each of the seven churches have been viewed historically for the last 2,000 years in the church age. If that idea is true, that means we are in the church of Laodicea, and do you guys know what Laodicea stands for? Lukewarm church. Yay. Does it seem like we're in the age of Laodicea? Does it seem like the body of Christ and so many of our churches are really lukewarm concerning the word of God? But also there's something that I view. I believe in, yes, that they can be representative of certain church ages, but in any age of the church for the last 2,000 years, we can see any one of the seven churches being represented in the various individual bodies of Christ throughout the world. So though we may be in the church age of Laodicea, maybe we are more like the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. At least I hope that we qualify in that. Grace and peace, he says, the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Paul used it 13 times in his introduction, in his epistles. Here John uses it as well. Grace and peace. Grace was the Greek salutation, peace, a Jewish greeting. Salom, peace. But as far as grace is concerned, charis in the Greek, it speaks about God's favor or kindness given toward those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We have an acronym for this called God's Riches at Christ's Expense. The peace, this word speaks about denoting a, a relationship or an attitude, but also more so to be in this place of peace. It's a state of mind that you are in or a state of spirit that we're in. We're at peace sometimes when the rest of the world is like, Crazy. They're going crazy in worry, in fright. And as the body of Christ, we can be at peace because he's given us a look at the end. Now, I heard this on the radio this week. I was listening to David Fiorazzo, who was with us last week. I was listening to his podcast. And one of the guests that he had on his show this week, he was saying that, I thought all these things that we would we see happening now would happen after the rapture. And many years ago, the Lord showed me that 
yeah, there's bad things going to happen once the church is taken out, but it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a, a throttling up. We're going to see these things coming into shape, and I think we are. We're seeing the throttling up. Things are going faster and faster, but in the midst of that, we can have peace. It's a promise of Jesus in John 14:27, where he says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And through Jesus, we can have peace and denoting this state or this condition of a person. But also, we have this peace of God that Paul wrote to the Philippians, a favorite verse of Kevin Robson here. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. I don't get it, but I got peace. Yeah, but you shouldn't have peace. Look what's going on. I don't know. I just have peace about this. That's because it's from the Lord. In fact, grace refers to God's love and action from which we find true peace with God. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into His grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That it is through faith that we have peace with God, but because of faith we have access into His grace in which we stand. Church, we need to learn to stand in God's grace today. And I fear sometimes we, it's kind of like putting on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, and when you've done all these things, you've put on the armor, then stand. We need to learn to stand in God's grace today. It's from God and from the Spirit, all three persons of the triunity are active throughout the book of Revelation. First, we see God the Father from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. God is eternal in His existence. God is not held by time, but He holds time in His hands. In Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, even everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He who was, who is, and who is to come. And God of the, the Holy Spirit being mentioned here, the seven spirits of God who are before his throne. Now the seven spirits speaks, again, the number seven, the number of completeness. So it's not referring to seven separate spirits, but the complete spirit of God before the throne of God. The Holy Spirit, Matthew Henry said this, the Holy Spirit called the seven spirits, not seven in number, nor in nature, but the infinite, perfect Spirit of God, in whom there is no diversity of gifts and operations. He is before the throne, for as God, he so governs all things by his Spirit. Now, in Isaiah 11, verse 2, when you include the opening of this verse, the Spirit of the Lord, you have seven distinct characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Number one, Isaiah 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord 
shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, number three. The spirit of counsel, number four, and might, number five. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, number seven. Isaiah 11, verse two, giving us seven distinct characteristics of the spirit of God. In Revelation 4, 5, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We'll talk about it later on as we get into the book of Revelation. And of the Son of God. So all three are represented. God the Father, God the Son. I always say it in that order. John's order was God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's the faithful witness. Martus is the Greek word. Martyr we get from. And so one who is a witness, but this word also designating those who had had a testimony unto death. They died in the process of their witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, it says, but Christ is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since man came death, by man came death, the sin of Adam. For since by man came death, by man, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. He's not only the firstborn from the dead, he's also the ruler over the kings of the earth. And in 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 through 16, the second half of verse 14, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. There are many rulers on this earth. 195 or 96 nations on our in our world right now. And I say five or six because some say five, some say six. It depends on how you classify one of the nations. But Jesus is over them all. But also is Jesus who loved us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than any man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He also washed us, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And I love this verse because Paul had just listed out just a bunch of sinful states that today in our world, they're calling it equity. They're saying it's no longer sin. But in 1 Corinthians 6.10, he lists out several of these things that we are, that is being pushed upon us today to accept what the Word of God says we should not accept. But then he says, and this is the beautiful side of this verse, 1 Corinthians 6.11, But such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is transformation in Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. We come to Jesus Christ because we know that we are sinners in need of salvation. We come to Christ because we want to be new creations in Jesus Christ. We don't come to Jesus Christ to add Jesus on top of the mess of our lives that we've already made. We come to Christ that he might take what we have destroyed and make it brand new. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. He has made us kings and priests. King John, you can start calling me that now if you want to. And has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please don't call me that. <laughs> Literally, it is a kingdom of priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests. That's not so bad. It means that we represent Jesus Christ wherever we go. Exodus 19.6, it tells us that this is what God desired for the nation of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. It was God's desire for the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests to all the nations of the world. It is God's desire for us. In 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Remember, we once were not. We were apart from Christ. We were unbelievers. We were without faith. But now, just like in 1 Corinthians 6.11, we have been um, washed, sanctified, and justified. We were once not, Peter says, so he's agreeing with Paul. Second Peter 2.10, we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had once not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. To Jesus belongs all glory, dominion, forever and ever. It is an everlasting dominion. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, let him speak, speak, singular. Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God has supplied, that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Trinity wants to bestow their grace, their peace upon our lives. Grace and peace. He is coming, verses 7 and 8. Again, the context tells us. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. So every eye will see him. He is coming. Behold, 
Truly, truly, he is coming, the scripture tells us. And this is referred to the kingdom age, or what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. When every eye will see him, Matthew 24, 30, Jesus said these very words. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Can I tell you something that I'm going to mess up your minds here? Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to. It's kind of a running joke with me because there is an evangelist in the Calvary Chapel movement named Greg Glory. So sometimes I see that he's coming with powers and Greg Glory. It's not Greg Glory. It's great glory. <laughs> but every time I see that verse, I'm going to mess with your minds now. I think of Greg Glory. I don't know why. <laughs> Sorry, I just messed you up. I want you to be just as messed up as my mind is. <laughs> Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Every eye will see him, and they will look upon him whom they had pierced, the Jewish people. And then Zechariah 12.10, it goes on, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. All the tribes of the earth, they will one day recognize Jesus Christ. All these prophecies combining from both the Old and the New Testament coming together, speaking about the reality of Jesus Christ coming again, saying, verse 8, This, I believe personally, is of God. Some say it's of Jesus Christ. Later on, we'll see almost every one of these descriptions given to Jesus. Jesus said, I and my Father are one, so I don't have a problem with this. But personally, I look at this and I think, this is God the Father. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And it's that last phrase, the Almighty, it seems to be an exclusive title for God himself. Although Jesus used this in his declaration, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last. This is applied to God in Isaiah 44, 6. I, the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. So there's a, a separation I, the Lord, the King of Israel, the Father God, and his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And then the Lord goes on, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. And besides me, there is no other God. Isaiah 44, 6. Who is, speaking about the present, who was, speaking about the past, who is to come, speaking about the future. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then the Almighty, this El Shaddai, the title given to Abraham in Genesis 17:1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, Jesus, he's co-eternal. He's co-king. Uh, he's all of these things. He, in 
Revelation 1.11, he describes himself as Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He uses the very same two descriptive terms, I believe, given to his father here in verse 8, also given to the son in verse 11. Jesus is and was and is to come. As Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow or forever, And the Almighty, again, I believe an exclusive title reserved for God the Father. Where in Revelation 21, 22, it says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord God Almighty, God the Father, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Son, are the temple together as one, but distinctly representing them. The question I have Will we be found ready when Jesus comes? And we close out with one last verse, just part of the introduction. John saying, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John, as a brother, John said, I am a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. As a companion, he says, I am a co-participant, a co-laborer, joint partners in this venture of faith with the body of Christ. In the Old Testament, we have references that refer to the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of men, the kingdom of the Lord in the New Testament. We learn about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Here, John refers to this tribulation, this kingdom, this patience of Jesus Christ. According to Peter, we have access into the kingdom of God only by way of Jesus Christ our Lord. Second Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. So an entrance will be applied or supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When John recorded the revelation, the Roman emperor Titus was persecuting the church. Titus had banished John to the Isle of Patmos because his testimony of Jesus Christ. In John 16, 33 Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. I know we don't like that word, but this is what the Lord has taught us. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so the patience of Jesus Christ can be viewed in our patiently waiting for the coming of Christ. And also are enduring all things until he comes. James 5 verses 7 through 8 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of our Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. We are together in Jesus Christ, companions in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Christ. Today in our study, we saw in verse one, these things, there's a sense of urgency. 
these things which must shortly take place. Verse 1. Verse 3, the time is near. Verse 7, he is coming with clouds. And although this prophecy was written in the sense of urgency, Peter explains, I've already been in this section, I want to remind you, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. And I fear that we do. We often forget. We're reminded not to forget this one thing. As with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Perhaps Jesus has delayed his coming because he's waiting for hundreds, millions to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe he's just waiting for one. We can't know that. But this we do know. And let's stand together and go through our church's motto that we have to believe, receive, grow, and go. We as Christians... So our church motto, believe, receive, grow, and go. Let's go ahead and say it together as we believe. Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11:6. we have to believe that there is a God. But that isn't enough. We also have to receive God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts. We say together, Romans 5.17, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.17. It is necessary to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your heart. Once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, we have to grow in our faith. And so Peter teaches us, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, let's say it right, John. Come on, John. King John's not doing so well. We say together, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18. And I tell you what, coming together, worshiping together, this is part of that growing process. But we also need to go. And we say together, Matthew 28.19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, even... (laughs) King John. (laughs) So I tried to look up at the monitor and I got lost and I stayed lost up there. On a serious note, if you have questions regarding faith, you're listening on the radio today, you're watching through Facebook, through a video, hearing this message at some other time, please email us at cclv 
at Comcast.net, CCLV at Comcast.net. We would love to answer those questions for you. We'd love to pray with you. Um, We just want to be available for you. Faith is important, not just believing in God, believing that there is a God. By the way, for the first time, a survey came out this past week. The evidence came out. The survey was done prior to this that Christians in the United States have fell under 50% to 47%. There are less people believing that there is a God. It is necessary. If you have questions, please contact us. If you'd like to share in our ministry through tithes and offerings, you can find that information on our website at cclv.org, cclv.org. This coming Wednesday, we're going to be in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 75. I titled it Gethsemane, as we'll be there in the garden with Jesus and his garden prayer. And that'll be this coming Wednesday, Lord willing, at 7 p.m. Let's go ahead and worship together as we make a switch for our worship team coming forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done and that you intend to teach us as we go through the book of Revelation. Lord, let it be um, an exciting study for us. Let there be laughter as there was today. But also, Lord, help us to be serious about the things that you have given to us in your word. For we do believe, Lord, that the time is near. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.